All right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so it's me and our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. Hugo, how's it going? Going well, Bradley. Welcome back. Uh, the, the podcast has missed you. Yeah, I, I have to say, it was I had a great trip. Uh, really, really great to spend that much time, especially with Lyle, because a lot of it was just me and him. Um, I am not built for sustained leisure. Uh, that's definitely one thing I learned. <laughs> Are you built for leisure at all, do you think? I mean, you seem like at a Mets game or something like that. Yeah, I think in short spurts it's possible. Um, and the truth is this. The, the, anywhere I think who's been on a safari will know what I mean. It is so captivating and so different and so incredible that for that part of the trip, I, I really was engaged in it, right? It was just by the time we started going back to big cities that I was just like, I, I want to go back to my office and start working. Okay, let's catch up on that for a second. But I want to tell listeners, so we're going to be um, – spending a, a good bulk of this podcast talking about this concept of aggressive centrism, which Bradley has been texting some of his uh, political consultant friends about um, and thinking a lot about. But um, we are going to catch up with Bradley first about his trip. So he went to he went to Africa, went to Europe, went to the Middle East. Um, so we want to talk a little bit about that. And my question to you, and I want to hear about the safari and some of your weird experiences with animals that you can talk about. Um, but I want to ask you a general question because you were away while you were away. The Supreme Court um, uh, overturned Roe v. Wade. I think of real importance to New Yorkers as well is, although perhaps not equally so, but still significant is the um, the overturning of the concealed carry law uh, for handguns in in New York City, which is or New York State, which is something all New Yorkers have you know, I think learn to live with and, and enjoy the benefits of, frankly. Um, uh, those are two sort of earth-shaking moments. You were many thousands of miles away, obviously aware of what was going on and following them, but not sort of in the sort of same uh, environment that, that, that many of us were. How did that look and feel being out of the country and looking back and seeing some of these things happening? Um, you know, really strange and in some ways isolating, right? So, the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs came down while I was on a plane from Dubai to London. And what was originally be like, okay, eight hours of just watching movies and killing time became this Wi-Fi is not good enough. I got a lot of work to do. Um, as I think listeners know from our last episode, we've been working with some other people on a project called Mayday Health, which is an education nonprofit that shows uh, women how they can access abortion drugs, um, even if they live in red states that ban it uh, through a combination of telemedicine and mail forwarding. We've been working on it for you know at least a month or so. And then uh, the minute that the decision came down, we launched. And then it was an issue of how do we get this thing out there? How do we just establish credibility? Um, and how do we pass laws that really make this feasible? So the role that, that me and some of my team have been playing more than anything else um, is working with states on sanctuary laws for doctors and abortion providers so that if you do provide counseling and medication for women in states that do ban abortion, including banning it uh, online, um, you are protected by your own home state. You can't be extradited. You can't be tried. You can't be sued. Um, it may not mean that you could then step foot in Alabama or whatever it is, um, but New York's passed that law. Governor Murphy in New Jersey signed it. Uh, over this weekend, we're working on Illinois, working in Massachusetts. So um, between that and fundraising and comms and developing a federal strategy, you know, all of a sudden I found myself on this flight um, 
you know, scrambling around trying to get a, a signal as much as I could. Were you uh, now? So that's 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 Bradley, the the you know the the political strategist uh, investor jumping into action. What were you? I guess I'm curious how it felt like emotionally, like just these are removed, removed. So like Megan um, said to me, are you going to send something to the team? Right. Meaning, you know, once some t- occasionally when something really big happens in society, um, I will send a message to everyone who works for us just with a few thoughts about it. Now, I remember so- on January 6th, you wrote something pretty amazing and sent that around and that was a big deal. Right. So I think I did that for I remember George Floyd doing that as well. Um, so I said, yes. And I drafted something. And then it was interesting because Megan said, you know what? Um, it's not the right moment to send this out. Because what I drafted was, this is horrible. Here's what we're specifically doing about it. Because other than I think me and Bob and Megan, I don't think anyone at Tusk was aware of Mayday and the work that we were doing around it. Um, and so I wanted people to know, A, you work at a place that actually is doing something about this. And B, here's how you can help us do something about this. Right. Uh, and that's, you know, listeners of this podcast know that that's how my brain works, right? There's a problem. I look for a solution. And Megan actually was like, you know what? Let's hold this until like Monday or something like that because – you can't tell from a flight and then being in London what the mood is here. But even though you're outlining a solution that everyone here will be happy to hear, now is not the right moment for it. So I, I think I had a hard time a little bit gauging exactly how people felt. And then when we got to London, uh, our friends Harper and Amber and Kim, you know, were all Abby, Charlotte, Sylvia, their, their 16-year-old daughters, my 16-year-old daughter, um, were all there. And I think seeing their reaction to it, especially – um, I think helped me realize that, you know, it just, it, it was definitely very different than if I was just in New York when it happened. What, what was there, what did you sort of figure out from talking to them? Like what, what, what were they saying or, or, feeling? I just think it's, it's the level of emotional pain that it caused them that their country would do something like this. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, for me it was like, okay, this bad thing just happened. Here's how we can circumvent it. Right. And like I jump right to the solution, and there was just so much just despair and pain and shame about the country that we live in right now and what it thinks about women and everything else that um, it, it just made it feel much more raw and tangible to me and, and less like a problem to be solved and more like a, a crisis to just you know almost participate in and, and let people feel as angry or upset as they need to. And you got back to the United States right before the holidays, is that right? Yeah, uh, very late Wednesday night. And how did that feel getting back to the country after being, you were, you were away three weeks or something? Yeah, almost three weeks. Um, you know, we came upstate. Uh, so I still feel a little isolated um, because uh, we, you know, have still been to the city yet in a while. Um, and then maybe there's too much information, but Lyle and I picked up E. coli on the trip. <laughs> that is too uh, much information. Yeah. So, you know, last few days have, well, it's, 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 it's been a fairly contained existence the last few days anyway. Uh, <laughs> it's now that it has been uh, diagnosed through testing, you know, we're, we're dealing with it, but. Um, oh, congratulations. So, thank you. But so I haven't really had any public interaction even up here uh, with anyone yet. Um, we're going to dive back into politics, but but we're going to take a quick detour here to talk about um, some of your uh, some of your thoughts from being on safari with Lyle, um, yeah. and you had some pretty close encounters with animals. You sent me this kind of 
was it a video or just a picture of the giraffes like coming in through your window? Is that what, what did you say? Yeah, well, that was not like by accident. So there's a hotel in Nairobi called the Giraffe Manor. And it's literally a place where people go for one night typically and you hang out with giraffes. Um, you feed them uh, in the morning at 6 a.m. If you open up your windows, they know to poke their head in. You've been given food the night before to feed them with. Um, and, and we did, uh, the afternoon before that, there's kind of like a high tea thing that the giraffes attend as well. And you can feed them. A high tea thing that the giraffes attend as well. I just want to get giraffes. Uh, giraffes are eating like oats and molasses and the humans right. are eating this like tea sandwiches or whatever. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, so that, that was really cool. And look, just generally speaking, uh, you know, it's, it is such a wildly different experience. I mean, I literally live in the middle of Manhattan, right? You can't live in a much busier environment than I live in. And then my life is just by design, insanely busy. Um, and so to see this other environment of which, by the way, it's not like, oh, this is so much better. Like it was fascinating to watch all of these different species and how they interact with each other and how they survive but I also didn't come back and was saying, wow, it'd be so much better to be a zebra. Um, I think it's really hard. You know, I mean, you know, it's hard than, to be a zebra. I think it's very hard to live, uh, you know, on the plains or in a jungle and basically spend the entire time fearing for your safety. Right. So I think if you're a lion, it's pretty good. If you're an elephant, it's pretty good. Maybe if you're you a think bird, an elephant is pretty good. No one attacks them. Right. Um, they have a long lifespan. They're much more intelligent than any other creature out there. Um, and so, you know, they're safe. I just, the, the, the plottingness of it, right? Like I would think if, I don't know why, I don't know if I can exactly articulate it, but I would think that having speed as an animal would be. Actually, you know, what's funny, at least according to the guides, elephants can move pretty quickly if they want to. Really? Um, yeah. But, but the other thing is, look, like there I run an elephant or probably not. No. No, not a, at least the guides would say no. Um, you know, these elephants weigh as much as eight tons, right? 16,000 right. pounds. So th there's almost no world where they're really being attacked, for, just from what I learned, um, by other animals, right? So I, th I think there are a few species that probably aren't as stressful, but everyone else is basically going to look out all the time for who's trying to kill them. And even an elephant, okay, it's, it's safe from attack, but they have to consume 600 pounds of leaves a day just to feed themselves and part of their digestive system is so bad that most of it just kind of, you know, goes right through. So, you know, I was, wait, rather give me, let me give you two questions to focus yeah. the conversation here. The one sure. question is, is what was the, and I'll answer them, I'll ask them both. And then you answer, what was the most interesting animal just to encounter and like sort of observe and interact with to the extent that you could. And then second, um, I, I think I know where this where this will go, but um, what animal would you want to be? You're talking about which animal has the best life. Sounds like elephants are pretty good, but um, but answer those two questions. Yeah, I mean, so in terms of interesting, like we actually saw tons of lions. It just felt like everywhere we went, there were lions. And look, when a when a lion walks literally right next to your jeep and it's within. 16 inches of you it's pretty thrilling and terrifying but overall they just sleep 20 hours a day right so not not really that interesting actually right. um and so and you know like giraffes are sort of magical when you first see them because it's like oh my god it's like you're living in jurassic park or something like that but there's just tons of giraffes there there's tons of zebras there so you know it feels like kind of a lame answer but i think the elephants because they are so big so majestic so smart 
um, so much more intelligent, live so much longer, uh, are, are not only the animal that you would clearly want to be if, if you were that one animal, um, but it was also the most interesting. Okay. We're going to, do you have anything else you want to add about the safari or the trip or shall we, shall we launch back into the, to the, well, not the real world. That's a very real world, but, but the, uh, just, just, just that, look, I mean, there is still a certain amount of perspective that like this country feels especially fucked up right now that the two Supreme court rulings on abortion and guns, uh, especially feels terrible, but I will say having, you know, we drove through Nairobi a decent amount, um, there are parts of the world that are much, much, much tougher to live in than the United States. And that doesn't change how we feel about Roe v. Wade being struck down or anything else um, or how awful that might be. Um, but, you know, it, it is good sometimes to get a reminder of um, as bad as we might think things are at home, people really live with much, much less around the rest of the world. Right. Um, so this concept of uh, aggressive centrism Tell me, um, first define it, if you would. What, yeah, what do you so, mean? So I, I think what I mean by it is, it, it seems to me, so I, I was reading The Atlantic yesterday, and I read two articles in a row, and it kind of really struck me. One was about sort of how the liberals blew San Francisco, the progressives, the left, kind of blew San Francisco, right? And even they took it so far that, that even they got rejected um, because they were all form over function or whatever it was all the time, right? And then the other one was about how Joe Biden is so unpopular because he's just seen as so passive, right? And as a result, he just reacts slowly to everything. He's, what, almost 80 years old. He seems 80 years old. But his team probably are on their 60s by and large. And so, you know, um, it, it's the sort of slow and plotting kind of like your, your vision of the elephant. And I was wrong about the elephant. You were wrong about the elephant, but maybe not about Biden. Um, but what, what kind of hit me was like, look, you know, there's a world where the choice is not either overly aggressive socialism that 90 something percent of the voters, even in the Democratic Party, don't actually want or this sort of very apologetic centrism that you see coming out of the, the White House today. But look at Bill Clinton in 1992. Look at what, you know, the sort of moderate policies that they were really stood behind and were putting out there. Look at Bob Rubin. Look at everything that happened. I know right now uh, the left likes to excorate all of them for not being progressive enough. But ultimately you had, you know, a decade of, of incredible prosperity in this country and we were not at war with anybody. And it's because there was a vision and the vision didn't require either alienating the vast majority of the country or just sitting back and letting things happen to you. And the question I have is why wouldn't we want uh, an aggressive centrist candidate for president in 2024, and why shouldn't that be the main platform of the Democratic Party in their races for House and Senate and also in state government and city government? And so to me, uh, aggressive centrism means saying, look, let's just take guns as the example. 15% of this country thinks no one should ever have a gun for any reason. They should all be confiscated. Fine. 15% of this country thinks that everyone should be armed at all times, no matter what. Fine. 70% of this country thinks we shouldn't confiscate people's guns, but it also shouldn't be so easy to walk in and buy an assault weapon, right? And the vast majority of the people in this country have the same point of view, but because those people, as we've discussed on this podcast a million times, don't bother to vote in primaries, their views don't really count, right? However, most people would say, yeah, that reflects how I feel, right? And yet we don't hear or see that because that perspective is not really necessary or, or valuable in politics because that perspective is not held by hardcore primary voters um, or immigration, right? Most people 
uh, do not think that we should go around deporting everyone who's here illegally, but they also don't think we should just have wide open borders and everyone wants to be here can walk in, right? Uh, most people think we should have, you know, real controls at the borders, real policies and quotas on immigration, but also provide amnesty to the people who are already here, especially kids and the dreamers. Um, again, you don't really hear that much of that because it tends to be either – you know, all forms of immigration, uh, you know, policies, illegal and, and immoral, and, and they're just screaming about that. Or, you know, immigrants are taking away our jobs and destroying our lives for the Trump rhetoric. Um, and again, neither of that reflects where the vast, vast majority of people are. And if you go through every issue, it's pretty similar on almost every single case, right? Even abortion, right? There's, yes, the country is split between whether or not um, – abortion should exist in the first trimester or the second trimester and all of that. But if it's, should abortion exist in some form, you know, it's some, about 85%. There was an article on Vox the other day um, talking about it. So again, um, there's so much more commonality than there really is disagreement. But because our leaders tend to either be the f- most aggressively far left or the most passively far center, um, we don't really see that. So there's this great platform that the Democratic Party could have. And by the way, I'm not even a Democrat. I hate the Democratic Party. Uh, I think they're all scumbags in both parties. But um, they could put forth such a better vision for this country. And I think that the nation is crying for that right now. So if if Bill Clinton is one model, who, who else? Like like so so he's a you know he's president almost 30 years ago or up until about 20 years ago, uh, 25. I think Obama in his, in his own way as well. I think, you know, the type of campaign he ran felt much more grassroots progressive. And so I think it had a kind of a tinge of the left. And I think the, you know, the Affordable Care Act, while um, probably felt like and was described as socialist medicine, was actually a very mainstream bill, right, that, that took at least some of the holes in our healthcare system and patched them up in a re- reasonably logical way. So I think Obama's policies were that way, um, but he didn't, you know, as we talked on this podcast a lot, other than the ACA, he, he didn't get very much done. And whether it was his fault or not, we can debate that. Um, that's the reality of it. Um, I think Joe Biden, as a, just as a senator, someone who's just expressing his views, would also be an aggressive centrist, but you know Joe Biden as as president seems to be totally either paralyzed between you know the conflict from the center and the left, or just slow to react to everything, or unsure of himself, or I, I don't know what the problem is. Um, but so th- there are examples of politicians who I think can do this, um, but you know because the press tends to pay attention only to the things that are right in front of them, like on Twitter. And on Twitter, it's sort of the far left dominating. It's Sanders, it's AOC, it's Elizabeth Warren, you know, all of that. The energy and the attention is on one side and the actual numbers and perspective and policy is on the other. And it's just waiting there for someone to lead. Um, You know, Josh Gottheimer, who we talk about this podcast a lot, and he's my my brother-in-law. I think he's been one really good practitioner of this Created the Problem Solvers Caucus, something like 29 Republicans, 29 Democrats. And thanks to Josh and his colleagues, the infrastructure bill did happen. And if we had gone the way the left wanted to, which was to hold it up until Build Back Better also passed, we wouldn't have had either one. So there are some people like Josh who are clearly leading in this direction. Um, but, you know, he's one guy, right? And I, th- I think there's so much opportunity for so much more. Can we get Josh on the on the podcast? I, we talk about him so much. I feel like uh, you know. I talked to my sister. Uh, yeah. She she puts real limitations on what Josh and I can do together publicly. So I really uh, I realized that, that I, I um I I you talk a lot about Josh and I I have never met him and I want to I, I want to get him on here. 
Um, but we can talk about that. You, you didn't meet him at, at Lyle's Bar Mitzvah? I didn't meet him at Bart Lyons. Where I wish I had, though. Yeah. But, um, he, he was the guy with the cape flying around. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I have a question. This is sort of a, it's not off topic, but it, it's something I've, I've, I, I wonder what your perspective on. Did Obama tell Biden he couldn't run in 2016? That's the that's the story. Some people confirm it. Some people deny it. I, I, you know, I was not part of Team Obama, um, so I, I don't. I, I've had people tell me it's absolutely true. I've had people tell me it's absolutely not true. I, I, if I had to guess, because look, whether or not Obama said that, Biden's very indecisive, right? Um, it took him forever to decide to run in twenty, and. You know, you could see a world where he had a lot of hesitation, whether it's because he had personal uh, losses in his family that he was mourning, which is totally legitimate, or just couldn't make up his mind. It's kind of Hamlet-esque. Uh, and I guess it was a combination of Biden being Biden, which is slow and kind of plotting, with, you know, Obama feeling some sort of political obligation to Hillary and maybe thinking that from a history standpoint, the first black president needs to help support the first woman president, not just revert to another white Christian guy. Um, so I think it was probably a combination of all of those different things. And, you know, but look, ultimately, fortune favors the bold. And one of the reasons that Biden's presidency seems to be so in the toilet um, is there's just a lack of boldness coming out of this White House. So one thing I hear from some of my uh Democratic friends, maybe not super liberal, but the the conversation has started to shift towards okay, who is the least objectionable Republican, right? So there's a widespread agreement, at least among people I talk to, that you know obviously do not want Trump to be president again, um, but do not see really good um, a really good chance of of Biden sort of pulling himself together, and nor the Democrats finding another candidate who has real uh, stature um, and can can beat Trump. Um, so, or a strong Republican. So, yeah. Who, so the, the the two choices on on offer right now, um, you know, the two questions are: How bad is DeSantis, and is Youngkin sort of like a viable alternative? So let me first just take issue with your underlying question itself. Okay, right? Which is the people you talk to, the people you talk to, never saw Trump coming didn't for a second understand the perspective of a Trump voter 99% of the time were sort of kind oh, no, of... No, no, I, I understand that. They're just thinking of them themselves. Like well, what I, I just, the, point, the point is, the, the first thing is, the people that you talk to, I think, is not a good barometer for anything. No no offense. By the way, they're the same people that I talk to. You well, no, 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 but they're, they're, they're a good barometer for like, like thinking of who they're going to vote for themselves. They're not saying like, oh... Like, they're, they're still, the odds are they're going to end up voting for the Democratic nom- nominee, whoever it is. The only way that what they're saying to you is meaningful is if they said, okay, Glenn Youngkin is a viable candidate and he's a much better choice than Ron DeSantis. And so we as Democrats are going to funnel tens and tens of millions of dollars into Youngkin's campaign to help ensure that he's the nominee so that whether it's Youngkin or Biden or the Democrat is, the outcome is not so bad, right? You saw in the state of Illinois in the governor's race, the primary was last week, J.B. Pritzker, who's the incumbent Democratic governor, funneled tens of millions of dollars into the campaign of the most right-wing um, Trumpian candidate uh, because he wanted to knock out the moderates so, to make his path easier in the general election, and it worked. So there is a tradition of doing these things. It certainly can can happen. But at the same time, unless the people you're talking about are willing to actually proactively go out there and really raise money for someone like Youngkin and really support someone like Youngkin, like their speculations are irrelevant. 
Okay, I don't think they're speculating about who's going to like be the Republican nominee. They're just trying to think of who well, they're, they're they pre- would personally be willing to live with. So I do think it's a different discussion. No, but they're, I guess here's where I'm challenging you. I, their preferences are relevant. Their viewpoints are relevant because I don't think they'll put their money where their mouth is. I don't think they have the balls to say, you know what, Youngkin is a so much better option than Trump or DeSantis that I would rather go on for him than support you know, uh, Biden or Kamala Harris or Pete Buttigieg or whoever it's going to be, right? You have to proactively make that choice aggressively, put your money where your mouth is. And I think 99% of your friends would never have the courage to do that. Well, you don't know some of my friends, Bradley. I know your friends. Uh, <laughs> do you, um, uh, who do you like better, Youngkin or DeSantis, just I mean, in terms yeah, of their- of course Youngkin, you know, but keep in mind- I, Of course Youngkin. I haven't voted for a Republican in a while simply because- I've been so like like Trump, but, but pre Trump, I made a point on every ballot I ever cast. Um, you know, I can't vote in primaries, but in in general, um, to have, you know, bipartisan, uh, candidates because I believe in that. Right. So, you know, I, I don't even necessarily have a problem with a Republican president if they are someone who, um, I think is, is the best person to move this country forward. You know, if, if Mitt Romney had beat Obama in 2012, it wouldn't have been the end of the world. Right. I, I voted for Obama. I preferred Obama. Um, but but it would have been okay. So you know, uh, for for me, sure, Youngkin would be great, or like, you know, Charlie Baker or Larry Hogan. I mean, there, there, there's a bunch of moderate Republicans in this country who are really talented governors and and could be really great. Um, but right now, that's just not where the Republican Party is. Uh, this is this is a little another a, a little diversion, but um, uh, in a year, will we know the name Cassidy Hutchinson? Yeah. Yeah, we really will. Because, and this is is something I've been trying to figure out, which is how tangible is the damage that she caused to Trump's either likelihood of running for president or his ability to win the primary and or the general election as a candidate, right? And look, first of all, let's just let's just admit none of us have any idea how to accurately gauge Trump, right? No one ever knows. He defies gravity and logic in every way, every time, right? So whenever we think we've got to beat on this guy, we don't. With that said, it seemed to me that her testimony was so damaging, made him look so terrible, that even if it all did was shift a little more momentum, a little more fundraising, a little more energy within the Republican Party to someone like DeSantis, um, it was really meaningful. And so if Trump is a candidate, um, then I think that we're going to hear Casey Hutchinson's name quite a bit. If he's not a candidate, yeah, but but if but if he's not a candidate, you know, less so. But but still, you know, the Democrat is going to use Casey Hutchinson as much as possible to, you know, try to invalidate whoever the Republican nominee is. Um, We have a couple more topics to cover. Yeah. Um, there was one you threw on the list, so I'm just going to p- ask it the way you put it on the list. You, you have an idea of how to increase crypto's intrinsic value, you say? Well, it's quite more a question. I'm kind of okay. just wondering about it. So, so we've seen this crypto winter come. You and Bob did an excellent episode, by the way, uh, on that the, when I was- got to get Bob on with us together. Uh, kind of. Yeah, and, and this conversation I'm about to have, he and I had the other day. So it okay. has reflect his thoughts. It follows up. I got you. Um, so right now, cryptocurrency- has no real intrinsic value other than A, believing in its concept, and B, its momentum, right? It's not an asset class like commodities or stocks or something where there is a P&L 
or some sort of underlying price that says, okay, this is what wheat is worth. This is what pork bellies are worth, right? This is what gold is worth. Um, and as a result, the fluctuations as we've seen are incredibly wild. But what I was wondering is, could you limit that risk and could you limit that volatility? And I think maybe the answer is yes, although I think everything I'm about to say fundamentally goes against the underlying ethos of crypto, so probably could never happen. But take Bitcoin, right? There's a limited amount of Bitcoin that can be mined. In fact, they're, they're pretty close to being done with it. Because there's a, a finite amount, that does create something of an intrinsic value, right? There's supply, there's demand, it's lim- the supply is limited. Therefore, um, that puts some real value on it. Or Ethereum, as a platform that you can build upon other blockchain applications or Tezos or something like that, that could have some real intrinsic value. But when you have 2,500 tokens out there and they're all just kind of random lottery picks and, you know, everyone is out there sort of promoting and hyping their own thing, um, then the entire market is sort of moored in nothing, based on nothing, and they're really really therefore subject to really big swings, you know, up or down. But what if, you know, FX and FTX and Coinbase and Circle and some of the other leading exchanges got together and said, you know what, we're going to fix this. We don't want to experience this again. So going forward, these are the currencies that we think for one reason or another have intrinsic value, either because there's limited supply or because other things can be built on top of them or whatever it is. And this is all we're going to offer. Um, If you did that, could you really stabilize the market itself? Could you then well, like, have, what do you think about like so if there's 2,500 coins, they'd pay like five, ten, yeah, five. I mean, five or ten. But but you if you did that, you may be able to prevent um, this kind of thing from happening again. Um, so that's the that's the question. Now the problem is, and Bob and I talked about this as well. I don't think you could legally do it without getting into price fixing and antitrust and, and all kinds of other legal issues. Um, so, but, but well, if you're an exchange, right, you can decide what to offer on your exchange. I mean, no, but what I'm talking about only work if all the big exchanges chose to do it at the same time, that that may not pass muster on the flip side. And, you know, also look fundamentally the entire point of cryptocurrency is it's a sovereignless currency that isn't subject to these kinds of rules and restrictions. And therefore it's whole ethos. It's whole spirit is contrary to what I'm talking about. But from this is just you and Bob were batting around like Bob doesn't endorse this or, you know, he just. No, I, I texted him and said, what if you only had Bitcoin and a few other platforms? And his view was if you did that, it could become more like gold and therefore a more stable asset um, and less like what it is today. I think we both agreed that the antitrust implications and everything else would be really hard to work through. But at the same time. Maybe in a sovereignless currency, you could work through them. Or maybe there's war where Gary Gensler at the SEC says, you know what? I'm more comfortable with there being seven currencies that have some sort of intrinsic value than 2,500 that are all based on absolutely nothing, right? And so maybe the regulations could be written in a way that permits it in this situation. Look, baseball has an antitrust exemption, right? There are industries that have antitrust exemptions. Maybe it would make sense to have one in crypto. So I'm just wondering that if we don't want to just constantly be on the same roller coaster over and over again with crypto, because it'll it'll recover. Like, I have no doubt about that. Um, But if we don't want to be on that, we may have to change the underlying structure to say, this is what we trade, this is what we have, and let's limit it to this so that there's a a way to put some intrinsic value behind it. Um, We're coming up on one of our trademark hard pivots here on Firewall. 
Um, we're going to uh, switch into basketball. Bradley, what the hell is going on with the NBA and why would any of us be a fan of a team anymore when they just completely remake themselves every year? Yeah. So it's, first of all, it's, it's very fun, I would say, right? It is um, fun. I, I would say that I enjoy the off seasons in most sports, other than baseball. I enjoy the off season of most this playoffs and the off season more than the regular season. So basically, you're talking about basketball and football because I know you don't give a crap about hockey. Yeah, basketball and football, right? So okay. I love all the trades, the drafting, the free agency. Like that's all pretty fascinating to me. You know, like a you know Indiana Sacramento game on a Tuesday night at 10 p.m. You know, uh, in January, I could care less about. Um, but you know, is Indiana going to trade Malcolm Brogdon to the Celtics? And was they did that, that already? Offer? They did, right? But that's interesting to oh. me. Or like this crazy fucking Rudy Gobert trade that the Timberwolves and the Jazz did—that's uh, interesting to me. And by the way, speaking of which, the one reason that I have not heard, uh, but that makes sense to me, is you know, A. Rod is one of the owners, new owners of the Timberwolves. Based on my interactions with him to date, I just. The fact that he might make bad decisions is not surprising to me in the slightest. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, it may not be more it's than not just parsing the Gobert trade. It, Gobert was terrible. Like it literally it seems like it's one of the worst trades in NBA history. Um, but but here's the bigger point. And, and KD, right? So I gave up my Knicks. So Howard and I shared Knicks season tickets, and I gave How many my. Years did my, you share tickets? 2012 to 18, something like that. Okay. And uh, and we'd really What's get the most games in a season you ever went to. Oh, that season they were good. I probably went to a good twenty games, including the that's playoffs. a lot. Wow, twenty games. Yeah, that probably it was only one season, right? And then by and they got progressively worse. So by the end, my kids didn't want to go at all. Um, and then I was like, why am I spending all this money for a, a team whose owner is despicable um, and nobody even really wants to go? You would always go, but that was if you were like my only option. Um, <laughs> So, you know, they work in seats. Um, so so I got rid of them. And then like two years, I guess right before COVID, uh, my friends Rich Sable and Jamie Rubin and I kind of bought like a Nets package because they got KD. We're like, you know what? Yeah, let's be we'll, part of history. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll just go to, I don't know, eight games a year and we'll see KD, we'll see Kyrie, and this will be kind of fun to do, right? And so we've had these tickets. We haven't. I don't know if I've ever actually seen KD and Kyrie on the floor at the same time uh, live, um, but I have seen KD play a decent amount. And part of me felt like, you know what? The minute he put on a Nets uniform, he's the best basketball player in the history of New York City, right? He is more talented than anyone who's ever played on the Knicks or Nets before. I thought, I want to be part of this. I want to see this. Uh, two problems. One, he's not that fun to watch in person. He's not John Moran. He's not Trey Young. He's not that exciting. But two, um, it was just a fucking disaster of all epic disasters. And so he wants to be traded. And I, I guess it gets to me to a point that I, I've talked about this before. I've written about this before. Why don't we just let every single athlete in every single sport be a free agent every single year, and let the teams reconstitute every single year, and that would make the entire 12 months of the year for that sport completely compelling and fascinating, right? And if a player is happy in a city and the team is happy, there's no reason that they can't work out a deal to stay. Um, but at the same time, you know, if your roster gets remade every single year, I think that means that the offseason is just as interesting for you as the regular season itself. And when the regular season is going badly, you kind of have some hope because you, you could be right back in it the next year. Right. But, you know, it's almost like a version of, of relegation in soccer, but, but sort of a different approach to it. So I, I kind of like the idea of saying, fuck it. You know what? Let the free market reign. 
no salary caps, um, no contracts other than just sort of one year. Well, you'd have to work out some kind of guarantees because part of a big part of it is still right. You know, you sign a seven year deal. You know, it's some job security that like you can't just be like sent packing in year three. Um, And that's obviously pretty valuable to the players. Yeah, they they would lose that. Um, Look, the players who perform well would do really well from this system. The players who don't, it'd become more like the NFL, right? Non guaranteed, but so I don't I, think the players' association is going to go for that. But I, I no, like. I, don't think so either, but I, I just think that like when when a player like Kevin Durant, who has four years left on his contract, can force his way out of Brooklyn, right? When Anthony Davis can can. Bill do Simmons that. thinks that there's a pretty good chance KD ends up coming back. I kind of hope he has to just just to teach him a lesson. To be honest, like. Like so, I mean, just, I'm not sure I'm going to give up my entire team for a guy who's what's he going to be 34, 35, 34, yeah. and he's got a history of injuries, and he's clearly demonstrated he can't carry he a can't championship lead. team himself. He can't so, lead and he's just constantly disgruntled. Right? Yeah. Why would you give up like all your young players and draft well, picks? For that? Hold on. Minnesota gave up five first round picks and a couple of young players for Rudy Gobert. Kevin Durant is, right. but that's a rod, as you said. That's true. <laughs> Maybe he'll have to go to Minnesota as well. Um, but okay. you know, let's let's switch out of basketball. I mean, you and I could talk about this forever. But, but the point is just this. I think the, the concept to, for the listeners to think about is what if you redid sports in a way where you said in a world where everyone has ADHD, when everyone's attention span is six seconds or less, um, and everyone has information at all times, what if we adapted sports to meet the world that we live in today? And rather than trying to kind of put – an imperfect system into a constantly evolving ecosystem in, of media and fandom. What if we adopted the ecos, you know, the, the system itself to fit today's ecosystem? There is a guy trying this, right? That athletes unlimited league. They, I think they do women's softball and yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to try to have that guy on at one. Point. Yeah, we will. We'll get him on. I, it's a pretty cool concept. Unfortunately, the sports aren't like terribly exciting, but you know, maybe they'll become something. Yeah. Well, um, by the way, let's say you're the WNBA, which has been struggling to gain traction now for what? 30 years. Um, you know, Brittany, the, the fact that, that Brittany Grenier is being ridiculously unfairly held in a Moscow jail and we're not sending fight. If that was LeBron, we'd be having F-16. Even in there. Moscow? I think she's somewhere else. Oh, wherever she is, right. But if it was like LeBron, we'd be bombing right now, right? Um, just shows you the W. Putin kind of miscalculated that. The WNBA just has not captured the American public's or sports fans' attention. So if you said, let's try something different. Every year, every WNBA player is a free agent. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that sparks interest in a way that, that makes it more interesting and exciting. Bradley, to close, give us the update on, on Mayday, um, yeah. the, the situation. Just give yeah. Me- so, so there was an article that ran on CNN.com on Friday. We're taping this on, on Monday morning that I found very, very encouraging. Right. So, so Mayday, is, as the listeners know from the uh, podcast we did with Nathaniel Brooks Horowitz the other day, is an education nonprofit that basically shows women online Here's how you can both continue to receive abortion drugs uh, in the mail, and here's how you can get counseling and treatment from doctors online. Uh, and it's a combination of mail forwarding, um, online telemedicine, uh, legislation to protect doctors in the states that are doing it, uh, things like that. So, but what we've seen is, at least according to CNN, Traffic to telehealth abortion platforms is up 456% since the draft opinion was leaked in May. Um, on the day the decision was released, June 24th, it was up 2,585%. Um, and I think what this shows is, look, Mayday's not driving all of this by any means, 
But clearly, there's real demand, and this is a real solution that will be incredibly hard for the states that want to ban access to abortion to enforce, right? It is really hard to figure out what's coming in through the regular U.S. mail all the time, especially if it's disguised as something else. And it's really hard to monitor every single individual's internet usage. And by the way, when they do, when they start going after individual women, that's when they're going to overreach and start losing political support. And so if they're smart enough to sort of hold off on that because they realize it's what will kill them, then that much further makes it possible to have to access uh, abortion drugs in red states through telemedicine, which means that um, the concept of May Day, I think, is right. Clearly, you know, we've already had something like 25 million impressions now. Um, and so that's driving people, hopefully, to the platforms like Hey Jane, like Choice, like Just the Pill. Um, and I think that, you know, we've just got to keep growing it from here. And the more and more people that, that know about platforms like May Day, and again, May Day is a nonprofit. It's an education website. We don't collect anyone's data about anything. Uh, we're just trying to make people aware of the different choices that they have. Um, but I think the more that we can promote those kinds of platforms, you know, you might have a real world where legally abortion is illegal in 26 states or 31 states or whatever it is, but effectively it's still completely available because there's no real way to stop people from using telemedicine and mail forwarding uh, to continue to do it. And so if you can undercut the actual efficacy of the Dobbs decision exponentially by making these services available to people, um, that to me is the most valuable thing we can do. And so I was pleased to see um, the increase in traffic. Uh, we are now out there raising money. We're talking the team kind of around the clock as to different ways that we can expand May Day. But I do feel like um, there's clear anecdotal evidence now, at least, that, that we're on the right track. And my ask to the listeners would be, as it was the other day, um, just let people know about it, please. Just promote it on your, your own platforms or talk to people about it um, because the the only really thing limiting it is, is just awareness. And, you know, we can use podcasts like this, but we really need as many different people talking about it as possible. That's great, Bradley. Um, let's uh, wrap it up there. Uh, Thursday um, episode is with Samir Kaji, who is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Yep. Um, and we will be back next week. Cool. See you next week.